Lord, when we sing about your love and we are amazed, we are also often shamed because we realize that the proper response is total commitment. So in this moment of worship today, we acknowledge our sin of being so selfish, of sinning not only by transgression, doing what we shouldn't do, but by omission, not doing what we're commanded to do. And we are, to told, we are told to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Help us to grow in that commitment today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. An American folk song coming out of the fears and uncertainty of World War I became popular some 20 years later when America was shocked into a second world war. While we tried to remain neutral as Germany was conquering Europe, we were thrust into the war on December 7th of 1941 when the attack of Pearl Harbor took place. The response was amazing and almost universal in this country, and that well-known song was reprised. You're in the army now. You're not behind a plow. You'll never get rich by digging a ditch. You're in the army now. Now, some of you who are in the know realize I changed those words a little bit because the actual words were a bit inappropriate. <laughs> but the point was well taken. The message was clear that life has for you dramatically changed. And it's not going to be milking the cow or pushing the plow it's going to be fighting a battle. This isn't a playground, it's a battleground. You're in the army now. And that's exactly what Paul is saying and singing when we get to Ephesians chapter 6. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to this wonderful book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Our study in Ephesians 6 started a while back with the broad outline of sit, walk, and stand. Sit means the first couple chapters, first three chapters actually, talking about our position in Christ. We are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. The walk begins in chapter 4. Now walk worthy of your calling, of your position in Christ. And the stand begins to take place in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our wrestling match, our battle, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings, but against spiritual beings, the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, it's against the spiritual forces of evil who are in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And we'll stop 
our reading right there. Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. I will acknowledge to you that some people have gone wacky when they talk about spiritual warfare. They're the individuals who often extend it beyond its biblical proportion. The one who sees a demon behind every tree and under every rock and is more demon conscious than they are God conscious. And I certainly don't want to in any way promote that misguided and uh, misunderstanding of Scripture. However, the other hand, on the other hand, is where we often find ourselves, the other extreme, where we don't even realize we're in a battle. And we need to be awakened to the fact that we are in the army now. And we've got some work to do. So the Apostle Paul tells us, let me give you one final word. You need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on, he says in verse 11. Verse 13, put on the full armor of God. That is a phrase that comes from the Greek word in duo, where we get the English word to be endued, equipped covered, as it were, and prepared for whatever the task may be before us. It literally means to sink into the covering of a garment and, again, to be prepared for action. This same idea is used in Luke chapter 15 in verse 22 when the prodigal comes to his father after spending his life in riotous living, dressed in rags, and the scripture says they put on him the best robe. And he was now prepared for celebration and a robe worthy of a son. It's the same phrase that is used in Luke 24, where we are told that the disciples were to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. And some translations use the word clothed, covered, enveloped with divine power. And then in Romans 13, Paul uses that phrase where he says we are to put on the armor of light. We need to put on the armor of God. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this summer, spiritual warfare and what it means to wear the armor of God. So let me ask you a few questions. Question number one, why do we need the armor? And Paul has already gone over that, but I think we need to be reminded there is a war going on. I mentioned last week that one of the books in my library that has almost a three-inch binding to it, a rather thick book of over 1,400 pages, William Grinnell dealt with these verses on the spiritual battle, and he says this, In this solemn text there is revealed the details of an ongoing war between the saint and Satan, a spiritual war that you'll not read of in the normal news of the day. It is daily. He says it is taking place, it's not taking place in some remote part of the world but rather the stage on which this war is fought is every man's soul. And there are no neutrals in this war. 
You can't play Sweden in the spiritual battle. You've got to take sides. And so this mystical spiritual conflict is a reality even though we often don't see it. And the battle rages within our soul, not in some distant uh, field. But it is also equally interesting that the battle takes place in the routine, mundane, day-to-day affairs of life. When does Paul start talking about this spiritual warfare? Right after he's talked about marriage in chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. After he talks about kids in chapter 6, the early part of chapter 6. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Teach them the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train them in God's teaching. Right after, he talks about what we might call employment situations in that day with masters and slaves. The normal, routine, mundane areas of life is where we fight the spiritual battle. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 27, notice these alarming words. Don't let anger take hold of you, because if you do, if you let the sun go down on your wrath, you'll give the devil a what? Foothold. You'll give him a beachhead, military language. In other words, if you don't watch your attitude, the wrong attitude will invite Satan to grab hold of territory in your heart. And so this spiritual battle, which we often don't see, is going on in the normal affairs of life. The battle is going on. But there's another reason why we need this armor. We need to understand that this armor is from God. It's the armor of God. And that simply highlights the fact that the battle is not ours, but the Lord's. The outcome of the battle does not rest on your performance. It rests on God's power. And until we understand that, that we in and of ourselves can do absolutely nothing, John chapter 15, Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Until we're convinced of that, we won't go to the Lord for his armor and trust in his might. But it's not our skill, it's not our strength, It's not our wisdom. It is the power of Almighty God given to us in his armor. When Hezekiah in the Old Testament was surrounded by the Assyrians, he urged the people of God on with these words. This is 2 Chronicles 32. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Now, I suppose that if you actually would count the soldiers, that would not have been true. But you saw, you see, he saw the invisible instead of just the visible. And he said, with him, the king of Assyria, is the arm of the flesh. With us is the Lord to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah the king when they understood that the battle is not yours but the Lord. The strength of an earthly general lies in his troops, but the strength of the army of the saints lies in the Lord of hosts. 
and he never loses. So we have to learn that the spiritual battle is going on and we must fight the spiritual battle in the might, verse 10. In the strength and in the might that God provides. And what is the strength and might that God provides? It is pictured in a beautiful way with this idea of armor. Now, I think it's helpful for us, before we get into the pieces of the armor, to understand that God has given us a lot of information. And that is vital in any warfare. You need people gaining good information about your enemy, the reconnaissance, before the actual battle takes place. You need to learn as much about your foe as you possibly can before the battle begins. Military intelligence is a prerequisite to winning a battle. And so the Lord gives us a lot of information, doesn't he? He says our fight is not against flesh and blood. But we are fighting a powerful foe who's well organized and in the heavenly realms. We told, we're told in verse 11 that our enemy works by way of deception, the devil's schemes. And we need to be aware of that deception. And we need to be prepared. George Washington, the general of the colonial army during the Revolutionary War, said, I cannot win the battle without better information. And when he was sent retreating from New York, almost in total defeat, he was able to establish a spy ring in the area of New York in Connecticut. Benjamin Talmadge, one of the generals, and a farmer by the name of Abraham Woodall, gathered together with other patriots and began giving General Washington the information about the foe that he had not had before that place. And humanly speaking, you might be able to say the war was won because of the information given to the general. You and I are given the information we need to win the battle. And here it is, Ephesians chapter 6. We're aware of the devil's schemes. 2 Corinthians 2, in order that the devil may not outwit us, we're not ignorant of his devices. We're not uh, unaware of his military tactics. He's a liar. He's deceptive. He promises you something good when all he gives is death and destruction. And because of that, the battle is on. Now, this summer, we're going to be looking at the six different pieces of armor. We're starting today with the belt of truth. And I think the order is important. I'm not sure it follows all the way through, but it is the logical order for a Roman soldier who is getting endued for battle, who is clothing himself with the armaments needed to fight the fight. Most likely Paul was chained to a Roman soldier who did not have all of his armor on, but might have had it close at hand. And the first thing is the belt of truth. So what is this belt of truth? Well, to understand that the Roman soldier, uh, like many people of that day, would wear a long tunic. This was a, something of an undergarment or overgarment under the undergarments. But it was the long tunic flowing merely with a hole for the head and a couple holes for the arms. And they would always have a belt that they could tie that tunic with around the waist. So if any emergency came up, they could girt the loins, they could 
pull up the robe and stick it in the belt and run. Or in the battle analogy, the soldier then could put this leather belt around his waist that would give him strength, but also was used so that it would not impede him in the march or in the battle. The belt also held together some of the other pieces of armament, like the breastplate and most likely the sword on the side. If you're reading in the NIV, it says, Stand firm then, this is how you do it, put on the belt of truth, that is, buckle the belt around your waist. And the old King James uses the gird, gird your loins concept, all the same thing. And we use a belt today for similar purposes. In Luke chapter 12, we read, Let your loins be girded about, and your lamps burning. That is, be dressed and ready for service. Wait for your master's call, but be prepared for action. And Peter uses the same concept when he says, Gird up the loins of your minds. That is, get your minds ready for uh, interaction and battle and conflict. Listen intently to what is being said. So the whole idea is this preparation for battle, and the belt was the very first thing you put on. Afterward, the breastplate. Afterward, you would put uh, on the helmet and all the other pieces of armament. But we're told in Scripture that although the Roman soldier puts on a leather belt, we are in the spiritual warfare to put on what? The belt of truth. And I say with Pilate, what is truth? It's interesting that commentators in dealing with this section of Scripture are divided over basically two perspectives. The majority believe the truth here is referring subjectively to the truth or the sincerity of your heart. It's the integrity or the transparency or the honesty of your soul. In other words, the argument goes like this. You cannot fight the devil by playing his game. He is deceptive and you have to be honest and filled with integrity. Don't, let, don't deceive yourself by lapsing into hypocrisy. Now, this is a good word for us because we cannot spiritually battle the evil one if we ourselves are hypocrites, saying one thing, doing another, saying we believe but not genuinely embracing the truth. This is what David seems to mean in Psalm 51 when he says in verse 6, God desires truth in the inner man, in the innermost parts, integrity. And I say to you that this seems to be, at least from the commentators that I usually check, the most popular view. But I think that it misses the point a little bit. Although this is certainly important and vital, I think the word truth refers more objectively to the truth of the gospel. So while there is importance with us being honest and filled with integrity... The belt of truth refers to God's revelation. The truth will set you free, John chapter 8. And that is the truth that God has revealed to us. It's all the Word of God. 
It is the truth as we have it in Jesus Christ. If the devil is a liar, then one of the ways that you and I are defeated in battle is by believing his lies. And too many Christians have embraced the lies of the evil one. And we need to get the truth of God into our soul to dominate our life. God's truth conquers the devil's lies. Jesus said, sanctify my people through truth. My word is true. My word is truth. And the more we know the word of God, then we are able to fight against the devil's lies. You see, the devil came to Adam and Eve with deception, craftiness, and lies. And Adam and Eve embraced them. And the moment you and I embrace the lies of the devil, we are defeated. And you say, well, I go to a Bible-believing church and we preach the truth of God's word. Yeah, we do our best, but all of us, pastor and people alike, are susceptible to believing the devil's lies. And it's so easy for us to embrace something that is not true. For instance, I can fight this war in my own power. And many of you believe that. You either believe there's no war going on or you believe if there is a war, I can fight it in my own power. And the reason I know that is because you don't pray like you should. And I don't pray like I should. And I don't put the armor on like I should. And apparently that means I think I can go it alone. So the Lord allows us occasionally to fall flat on our face so that we might realize that without him we can do nothing. Another commentator said the subjective interpretation is inadequate because not even Christian virtues constitute the armor that God provides. Nothing less than the objective realities, realities of the gospel will afford the believer the divine protection they need to resist the devil. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12 and we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and that is, in essence, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never outgrow the gospel because it is the ground from which you battle the evil one who wants to destroy you. We sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's no hope of me gaining or maintaining my position unless I am covered, girded about my loins with the belt of the truth of the gospel. So another practical question we have to ask ourselves is this. All right, how do I put the belt on? And if the truth of the gospel is the belt of truth, then you put the belt on by filling your life with the truth of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, that was read a, a moment ago, says that we are to fill our souls, that we are to allow the Word of God to fill us richly. We are to overflow, let it permeate all your life, your thinking, your wishing, your doing, 
be filled with the truth of Scripture. Every Christian needs that. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, it means the mastery of the truth and being mastered by the truth. Mastery of the truth is where you learn what the Scripture says. The truth of Scripture, being mastered by the truth, is where you let that truth take control of your life. John Bunyan, who was the great author of Pilgrim's Progress, that wonderful allegory about the Christian on his, wife, life, or on his journey to the celestial city, Pilgrim's Progress was, is so filled with biblical analogies. Uh, you read it over and over and over again, and your heart is filled with the truth of Scripture. And by the way, in Pilgrim's Progress, life is a battle. It's clear. But it was said of John Bunyan that you could prick him anywhere, and his blood would come out bibline. <laughs> he was so filled with the Scripture that when you cut him, it came out bibline. Boy, I like that. I would hope it would be said of me that whenever you ask of any question, the answer comes out bibline. Because my opinion really means absolutely nothing. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God alone that prepares us for the battle. So the way we put the belt on is to fill our lives with the truth of Scripture. By the way, study church history and you'll find out that the great creeds of the church, like the Apostles' Creed, those creeds were hammered out in the midst of spiritual battles in which truth was losing its focus. And they came together and once again declared, this is what God says in his word. And it became the rallying cry of the church. This is truth. And we need the truth of God's word. Remember, it is not progress in the conquest that we are told to achieve here in this section of Scripture. But it is rather simply strengthening our position or maintaining our position. It is repeated over and over again to the point of almost being irritating. Stand, he says. Stand. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. It's not conquest or advance or the march that he's talking about. It is holding our position. But what is our position? What ground are we to hold? The devil is doing all he can to separate you from Jesus Christ. And our position is that we are in Christ. We go back to the beginning of Ephesians. We are seated in Christ in the heavenlies. The wonderful picture of the gospel is that God has played, placed the sinner who believes in Jesus in Christ. I like to think of it this way. There is only one person going to heaven, and that's all. Because heaven requires perfection. Be perfect because the heavenly Father is perfect. He cannot in any way endure iniquity. Heaven itself is a perfect place where there is no sin and there is no death. The only way to get into heaven is perfect. But you and I have a big problem for we are all sinners. And one sin is enough to break perfection, right? One sin means we've broken the whole law. 
break one link of the chain and you have broken the chain. Well, then how do I get into heaven? You can't. Unless somehow you get into the one who's getting to heaven. Not too long ago, I flew to Boston. There were 250-some people on the plane. But we didn't individually fly. In fact, none of us actually flew. The plane flew. There was one plane that flew. But inside the plane were 250 people. And we got to Boston because the plane took us there. Now, there's only one person who gets into heaven because he's perfect. That's Jesus. But everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ is placed in Christ. And you get there because of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, when you're battling, it's the same thing. You battle in Christ covered with the armor of God, which is, by the way, and here's one of the greatest truths of this section of Scripture. What is the belt of truth? Jesus. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do you put the belt on? Fill your life with Christ. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He's arguing about living a life of consistency as a believer. And he says in Romans 13, verse 14, rather put on Jesus Christ. Some translations say, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Same phrase that Paul uses here in Ephesians. Put on Christ. And don't think about how you can gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's it. I need to put on Christ. Who is Christ? He is the belt of truth. He is the breastplate of righteousness because we are covered with the righteousness of Christ. He is the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace because Jesus is our peace, the Prince of Peace. He's our shield of faith because it's faith in Christ and that it's the faith of Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2, I no longer live, but I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God or by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's the helmet? The helmet is salvation and Jesus is our salvation, the captain of our salvation. And although the sword is called the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Jesus is the word of God personified. The Bible is the living, written word of God, and Jesus is the living, visible, personified word of God, the word of God incarnate. Jesus is the armor of God. So when Paul says, put on the armor, what is he saying? Hide yourself in Christ. Put on all the blessings that I've been enumerating for you in the book of Ephesians and hide yourself in Jesus. One of the great dangers... In churches like ours, evangelical churches that are concerned about doctrine, is that sometimes we divorce doctrine from Jesus. And we talk about our creeds, and we talk about our principles, and we, we're, we're doing all, uh, all we can to know the scriptures, and that's good, but only as a means to knowing Christ. Because it's all about Christ. And what discourages, discourages me 
almost as much as anything else is that often our churches are fighting against other churches and we nitpick over little things. I'm not saying sometimes we shouldn't be divided when there is error and truth. But we separate ourselves from real believers simply because they have a different view on music or dress or a few other things that are secondary. I heard of a church that was really good at fighting. They had done all they could from uh, separating with other churches in the area. In fact, they, they actually put above their church door the words Jesus only. They said they were holding on to Jesus only, but in essence, they seemed to be a rather critical bunch. One day a huge storm came and blew part of the sign off, the first three letters of the sign. So instead of reading Jesus only, it read us only. Us only. And that's an accurate sign that could be put over many Bible-believing churches. Us only. We're not concerned about other people. Let them walk in the halls. I'm not going to greet them. I'm not going to love them. I'm here for my own benefit. Well, I hope you do get some benefit when you come to worship, but I hope you are ministry-minded and you're more concerned about others than you are yourself, which means you, you need to really work at greeting and loving other people. And I guess that touches right where we live because I had a counseling session with a couple that is no longer coming to South because after being here for months, it seemed like no one would warm up to them. It's their problem, we say, and it might have been. But could have been our problem, your problem, because we're all about us only. <laughs> oh, I hope that's not true. It's time for us to focus on Jesus alone and put on the armor of God. And although we put on the armor of God individually, we stand united as one people in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know your word is true. It's easy for us to talk about it. It's challenging for us to live it. And so I pray for each one of us this morning that we might not only grasp the meaning of your word, but learn to live in its light. And if we get nothing else from this message this morning, may we clearly see that Jesus is the armor of God and we are to put on Christ, to love him, to follow and serve him, to proclaim him, and to love others because of him. For that's what Jesus would do. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.